0: Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. We're continuing our series called Blessed Are the Weird. This week's message is by Steve Fowler. Thanks for engaging in our our prayer time and responding in song to our great God. As I mentioned, we're wrapping up our series, Blessed Are the Weird, Uh, our look at the Beatitudes and today, looking at the, the last beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. Um, some of you may have read the book written by Richard Wormbrand. Um, it, it was written many years ago. It's called Torture for Christ. Wurmbrand, Richard Wormbrand, and his wife, Sabina, were atheists. And they became under the influence of a, uh, a German carpenter who shared Jesus with them. And they became Christians. In fact, Richard eventually became a leader. He became a pastor in a church. Um, this was before World War II, and then po- post-World War II, as sort of the dust was settling and, and countries were uh, sort of uh, rebuilding, Romania uh, w- was, a, was a communist country, and um, they were sort of setting the bar for their future governance in that, in that, uh, in that country. And they, they held a conference, it's kind of a strange name to the conference, but the, the communist government held this conference called the Congress of the Cults. And all faith leaders were invited to the Congress of the Cults, uh, from the major world religions uh, to Christians, or multiple denominations represented. And pastors were there. And the purpose of the Congress of Cults, which was uh, which was beamed live to the country of Romania, um, was for leaders of, of of different faith perspectives to pledge their allegiance to the communist government. And and this was happening uh, one by one. Each leader had to get up and, and pledge allegiance to the communist government, and their faith would would uh, would be secondary to uh, to what the government uh, wanted and believed. Now the leaders were, Christian leaders were pledging their allegiance to the communist government. And as this was happening, uh, Sabina Wormbrand leans over and whispers to Richard, "Richard, wipe this stain off from the face of Jesus Christ." As she was observing Christian, uh, Christian leaders pledging allegiance to the communist government. Uh, Wernbrand, he he leans back to his wife and whispers back, if I do this, you will lose your husband. To which then she leans back to her husband and says, I will not have a coward for a husband. No pressure, right? <laughs> Well, the time comes when Richard Wormbrand is going to stand up and he's supposed to pledge his allegiance to the communist government. And he gets up and he pledges his allegiance to Christ and to Christ alone. And after the, the Congress of the Colts ends, um, uh, Wormbrand is abducted on the street and he's thrown into a Romanian prison. He's imprisoned for a total of 14 years. Now, in those 14 years, he suffers brutal physical uh, torture, mental torture, emotional torture, um, and, and he, he's a pastor, and in his book, he describes the fact that he, he completely forgot all scripture. He couldn't even remember one Bible verse. His prayer life was, was just completely dismantled. Uh, the only prayer that he could pray was, I love you, Jesus. That's, that's the most he could get out Now, at year 14, when he's walking out the gates of his Romanian prison, as he's forgotten all scripture and he's barely been able to pray, a a passage of scripture pops into his mind the moment he walks outside the gates. It's a passage from the book of Genesis in which uh, it's recorded that Jacob, because of his love for Rachel, his wife, was willing to work for 14 years for his uncle Laban, and the idea pops in his mind that if Jacob could give 14 years of his life for his wife that he, that he, he loves so much, he could give 14 years of his life for his Lord in prison. And it's a bit of how he, he sort of kind of processed uh, his, his experience. You could, you could read Wormbrand's uh, story in his books. He's written several books. But I don't know what stories like that do to you. Because they're, they're sort of extreme. They're, they're dramatic stories. And by the way, they aren't just stories that happened in the past. They're happening today. There are many believers around the world today that are suffering persecution to extents, just like Richard Wurmbrand experienced. But, but the reality is that for you and I, we, we may not experience persecution that looks like that, but we may experience a, a different kind of persecution that has to do with ridicule and mocking, insults, maybe even har- harassment. Uh, when I was working for UPS, I was working my way through Bible College, and there was a bunch of us who were doing this at Simpson Bible College in San Francisco. We, we worked the, the early morning shift at UPS, and there's about eight or ten of us. And at break time, we would, we would sit in our bench and take our 15-minute break, and other employees would be walking by. And, and I don't know when it happened, but somewhere along the way, someone dubbed us the Simpson Choir Boys. Um, and they would stop, a bunch of them would come and stop, and they'd say, sing us a song, Simpson Choir Boys, and they would, they would call us. When we were off on, on our own doing our work, they would, they would identify us as one of the choir boys, and it was, you know, it's kind of funny at the, at the beginning, but after a while, it got a little bit annoying and kind of got under your skin, and as I was reflecting on that story, it, it, uh, this idea popped in my mind. I liked being liked. I don't know about you. I don't, I don't like the fact that someone might despise me, I don't like the idea that someone might hate me uh, specifically because of my association with Jesus Christ. Um, and, and you've dealt with this as well. I mean, maybe, maybe you're a high school student or a college student and you're on your campus and you've drawn a line and you've, you've said, I'm, I'm going to be sexually pure in a world that is, is just free with their sexuality. Uh, and, and, but you've, you've read scripture and you have a conviction you're going you're gonna to maintain sexual integrity. And so, and so people maybe make fun of that and, and ridicule that. Maybe you've made media choices about what kind of TV shows you're going to watch and which kind of movies you're going to watch, which ones you're not going to watch. And, and, and people maybe mock or, or call you names because of that choice. Uh, whatever it might look like, there's a sense of, of when those words come our way or when those looks are cast your way, it suddenly feels personal, doesn't it? It feels personal. Um, when, when the, those, those words come, or maybe even in the dramatic ways when persecution comes. And interestingly enough, if you've read the Beatitudes, when you get to this last Beatitude, Jesus gets personal. See, up to, up to this point, it's been blessed are those people. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus goes on and on with this this list. And it's, it's about those people. It's about the people. And they're the nameless, faceless people that Jesus is describing. Yet when he gets to this last beatitude, it suddenly begins to get personal. It starts out the same way. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But this is the one beatitude that Jesus will amplify. And it goes from those people to you and I. Listen to how Jesus says this right after he's he's talked about this beatitude. He He says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things about you because you are my followers. Can you feel it? Blessed are those people, blessed, blessed are those uh, you know, who are merciful, um, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and blessed are you when you're lied against, mocked, insulted, because you are my followers. This, this gets intensely personal. And what I want to do this morning is, I, what I want to do is just help us understand what this beatitude doesn't mean and what it does mean. It's really important. What, what it doesn't mean and what it does mean, I want to give us a bit of a biblical perspective on persecution and then get to the practical application. Okay, so what do I do when the lies come, the insults come, or the, or the, the classic persecution comes? What's my response here in 2015 um, so I just want to dive right in and start with what does this beatitude mean and what doesn't it mean? And let's start with what it doesn't mean. And I'll just put some of these up on the screen here. What it doesn't mean is blessed are those who are being persecuted for being overzealous and annoying. Okay? You know who you are. This Jesus is not saying that... When you're, when you're persecuted, when people harass or insult you uh, because you're annoying, you're, 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 you're blessed. It's not, about being an, it's not about this blessing that comes from pushing other people's buttons. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, Peter, writing to a suffering church in 1 Peter chapter 4, kind of hits on this. He says, if you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed, for the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. Now, we, we, we understand the murder and the stealing, and, uh, and, but the, the making trouble, literally what it's talking about, being obnoxious, or being a busybody, getting into other people, people's affairs. If you're suffering for that, that's sort of the, the consequences for being annoying, And this is not what that beatitude means. It's not a blessing for being annoying or obnoxious. The second thing that it doesn't mean is is this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for being offensive. Now, we need to understand this. The message of the cross is offensive. Paul tells us in Corinthians that to one, it's the, the aroma of grace, and to others, it's the stink of death. The message of the cross is, it is offensive. I mean, it sort of draws a line. But the reality is, is sometimes we become offensive as we deliver the good news of the gospel. In fact, sometimes I'm concerned that you'll see this at public events sometimes where there's a sense of uh, uh, this flicker of delight as people are pronouncing judgment, eternal judgment of what what it's going to be like to live a life without Christ. Without a flicker of compassion in their eyes, there's a flicker of delight as if there's a joy in being offensive. Now, I have nothing against street preaching. I think there's a place for it. But I think in each and every one of our hearts, we have to understand what is the motive behind our sharing of the good news of the gospel. Is it to offend or is it to deliver the good news of the gospel? That Yes, the message of the cross is offensive, but we don't need to give the message any help. So, Jesus is not saying, Blessed are those who are offensive. He's not even saying this Blessed are those who are persecuted for a cause. Now, this is a little more subtle because there are righteous causes that, are, that, that should be fought for. A classic example, example William Wilberforce in England changing a law so that slavery will be outlawed in England. That is a cause, a righteous cause that was pursued and he suffered for it and 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 there's a blessing attached to that but not every cause is a righteous cause example red starbucks cups (laughs) big difference slavery red cups the problem for us is that we struggle to have the wisdom to differentiate between the two And so oftentimes what's happening is the church was at the center of society. The American church is at the center of of community. And now what is happening in culture is that we're being pushed to the periphery. And what, what rises up out of us is this desire to be back in control. And frankly, it's ugly. When could it be that Christ is moving us to the periphery of society because he wants there's work for us to do there? But we're so angry because we we're not in control anymore. And what it's done is it's 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 shown us some of the motive in our heart. Now I'm not saying that it's wrong to fight for a righteous cause. We there are unrighteous laws that need to be changed, but not every cause is a righteous cause. So what Jesus is not saying is blessed are those who are annoying. Blessed are those who who are obnoxious or offensive. He's not even saying blessed are those who have a cause. But what he is saying is is simply this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for being like Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who were insulted, mocked, harassed, ridiculed, because they are like Jesus. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is what this beatitude is speaking to. In fact, this is what Jesus was trying to get his disciples to understand. John chapter 15, Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He was trying to help them understand. The more you become like me, the higher the chance is that you will suffer ridicule, insults, and yes, even to the extent of, of, of a worm brand where there's imprisonment involved. And Jesus is saying, if that, if that happens, if you're being like me and you suffer for that, you're blessed and the kingdom is yours. That's what this beatitude means. Blessed are those who are per- persecuted for being like Jesus, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now let's move to the biblical perspective because this is really important. Because sometimes we don't have we don't have a, a healthy understanding of persecution. There, there's, this, uh, there's a couple ideas. There's this Old Testament perspective on, uh, on persecution. It, it goes like this: disobedience leads to persecution. It's rooted in Deuteronomy chapter 28, when the law is being read and the people are hearing that if they obey the rules, if they obey the Mosaic law, life will go well for them. Their fields will produce a harvest. Uh, their families will be safe. Enemies will be kept at bay. There's all these blessings that, that flow from obeying the Mosaic law. Now, if you disobey the Mosaic law, then the rain won't come, there'll be famines, and the enemies will be allowed to come into the the land. And, And so what ends up happening, actually, in the worst case scenario, is if you keep disobeying, then the enemies will not only come into the land and attack you, they will actually take you into exile, which is what happened to Israel. This is the Old Testament perspective on persecution. If I obey, life goes well. And um, the New Testament perspective is actually quite different. Here's the New Testament perspective. Obedience leads to persecution. Actually, what the New Testament teaches is that when you obey Christ, that actually, one of the byproducts of that will be persecution. Now, you can, you can quickly tell when you listen to someone as this topic of persecution arises whether they have an Old Testament or a New Testament perception of persecution. Because if you embrace an Old Testament perspective of persecution, your focus will be on obeying and doing what is right. Because if I do these things that are right, then life will go well for me. It's sort of a life goes better with Jesus' gospel. And one of the ways, just one of the ways that it manifests itself is in political activism. What ends up happening is we need to to get votes, we need to... We need to get our way, and when we do, then our land will be blessed. Now, I know I'm touching on toes here, and you're probably writing me some cards, and that, that's that's okay. But see, what what happens is this: this next year is an election year. I, I'll be honest; I, I can't stand election years because here's what you'll hear. I you'll hear this. I guarantee you, this is the most important election ever. And really, what it's rooted in. We got to get our people in charge so that we can get laws going our way because when laws go our way, then we'll be blessed. Friends, it's an Old Testament perspective on persecution. And if our motive is to get our way, we should be asking ourselves some different questions. An Old Testament perspective is do the right things, life will go well. It's not how it works in the kingdom. Jesus actually says The exact opposite. servant's not greater than the master. They persecute the master. They're going to persecute the servant. If you don't believe Jesus, listen to this this verse from uh, Paul. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) This is life in the kingdom. The more you look like Jesus, the greater chance is... That difficulty will come our way. So it isn't about trying to, you know, it isn't about going and, 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 and trying to get persecution to come our way. It's not about being annoying or obnoxious or offensive. That's not the point. The point is we become like Jesus. And then when persecution comes, we shouldn't be surprised by it because that's what, that's what Jesus taught us. And when it does come that we get to the certain point, then how do we respond? So we, need, we need help here. How do we respond? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for looking like Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom. Having a New Testament perspective that is as I become like Jesus, there, there there probably will be some suffering that comes my way. I don't want it to be self-induced. I want it to be because I'm becoming like Jesus. When it comes, then how do we respond? How do I respond? Let me just give you a couple practical ways that you and I can respond to persecution when it comes our way. The first way is is this, don't retaliate, be Jesus-like with your actions. Don't retaliate. This isn't about paybacks. This is not, this is not about, you know, proving someone else, you know, wrong and, and, and that I'm right. In fact, Jesus would speak specifically about this and he would say things like, if someone strikes you on the right side of your face, turn the left side of your face toward them so they can strike you on that side. He would also say, if if someone tells you to carry their pack a mile, don't just stop at a mile, go two miles. Friends, these are not just pithy, beautiful proverbs that Jesus is spitting out. This is what life looks like in the kingdom. He's trying to describe for us how a citizen of the kingdom of heaven lives their lives. And yeah, it's not, it's not easy, but it's not, about reta- it's not about retaliating. It's not about Facebook posts to, to say how dumb that was and how wrong that was. That, be Jesus-like in our actions. And The second uh, thing I would say to us is don't give in to resentment. Be Jesus-like with your reply. See, it's one thing to encounter harassment or, um, uh, you know, someone mocking you and, and to say, okay, I'm going to be Jesus-like, I'm not going to punch him back. I'm going to be Jesus-like, uh, you know, I'm not going to retaliate. But it's not about stuffing it and then having anger and resentment build in our hearts. It, that's, that's, not, that's not the response Jesus, again, tells us to do, what to, what to do in this case. He says, he says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Can I just say you this? You will not be able to do that with resentment in your heart. You can't. We need to be Jesus-like in our replies. We need when we are hated, we love. When we are cursed, we bless. That is the Jesus-like reply. I love how the Aramaic Bible puts it. On this same passage, it says, But I say to you, love your enemies and bless the one who curses you, and do what is beautiful to the one who hates you. And pray over those who take you by force and persecute you. That's that's a Jesus-like response to persecution. And, and the fact of the matter is, is you you swim in these currents on a day to day basis. You 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 might be a teacher, and you're and you're walking, you're living in that tension of, of being a, a Christian in the workplace, or uh, you're a business leader, or or maybe you're a student, and and. Um, you know you're you're in the lunch room at, at work and 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 you pray over a meal and and someone sort of say oh, okay you know that that's a christian and, and so there's a price to pay. So you start getting mocked because you you pray for your lunch. You swim in these currents. You know, you you pray for you pray for your lunch here at church. We're all Christians. You don't pray for your lunch, then you get beat up. But if if you pray for your lunch, it's just normal. It's funny a couple couple days ago it was uh, Trina's birthday my my wife's birthday and um, she, she was really excited about doing this cooking class at this uh, store. I think it's called Sur La Table. And, and so she signed up to do this cooking class with her uh, with friend. And, she, and, and uh, I and my friend Tony went as well. And Trina was really excited about going to this cooking class. And I was too. I was, well, I was looking forward to it. <laughs> And uh, it, actually, it actually was pretty fun. And we were, we, we'd done the whole class. And we, we cooked the meal. And the food was now on the table. And there was an elderly Chinese woman to my left and her daughter sitting next to her. And then right before we were about to eat, um, the, the mom grabbed the daughter's hand and, and they began praying. And I caught them out of the corner of my eye. And I was like, oh, they, there must be Christians. Out of my other corner of my eye, I see across the table there's this woman and she just rolls her eyes. Like, oh. You deal with this on a week-in, week-out basis. It happens in a lot of different ways. And, and we don't retaliate. And, and we need to be Jesus-like in our replies. And, and the next thing I'd say to us is, that, is don't be depressed. Be Jesus-like with your attitude. Now, I understand what depression, like. look, for, for many people, depression is not a choice. You're dealing with this battle of depression. I'm not talking about that kind of depression. I'm talking about the kind of depression that's induced with this idea that, that if, I, if, if I obey Jesus, life will go well for me. The life goes better with Jesus' gospel. What happens is when you live with that illusion, that illusion gives birth to children. It's called disillusion. You become disillusioned when trouble comes your way. In fact, you begin to ask questions like, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Why, why is this happening? And in fact, you might even get it to the extreme where you think maybe, maybe, maybe God's forgotten you. Jesus actually says the, the exact opposite. The reason I say don't be depressed, be Jesus-like with your attitude is because Jesus says, be glad, rejoice, rejoice. Persecution isn't to inspire fear, it's to inspire confidence. Now, why in the world would Jesus say that? Because he says it's an identifying mark on a Christ follower. This is how they treated the prophets. That when you encounter suffering, not for being obnoxious or annoying or taking up causes that aren't righteous... But when you are truly becoming like Jesus and you suffer ridicule or mocking or persecution because of that, Jesus says, take heart because this proves you are my disciple. The early disciples knew this very well. Acts chapter five uh, says, then they left the presence of the council. This is Peter and John. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They felt blessed that they could, they could suffer like Jesus did, who, by the way, Jesus went to the cross without even opening his mouth in defense. I find that I'm very defensive. I don't know if you if you deal with that. We want to defend ourselves, defend our character, and say that's a lie. And Jesus was silent. Jesus saying, Be glad, rejoice, because this actually is an identifying mark that you're one of my kids. So this whole beatitude is is simply about the more we become like Jesus, the greater probability there is that that there is suffering. So we need a healthy theology of suffering. We need to understand that suffering is not a result of disobedience in in this New Testament era. And we need to know how to respond. We don't retaliate. We, we, We don't allow resentment to fester. In fact, we love our enemies. And we don't go into sink into the depths of, dis- of despair. We actually take heart, even in the pain. The pain is real. I'm not saying we, don't, we pretend that it doesn't hurt, it does hurt. But we know that this is temporary. In fact, Paul gets at that in 2 Corinthians. He says, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, We fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. It hurts, it's real, it's temporary. And the more we look like Jesus, the greater honor there is for us when we see and we live with him forever and ever. Let me just wrap up this beatitude with this story. Um, late 1880s, there's a Welsh missionary who travels to northern India, begins sharing the gospel in northern India. Uh, very difficult place to, to share the gospel, uh, very little fruit. But in this one northern province, there was a family that gave their lives to Christ, a husband and a wife and two girls, teenage, teenage girls, um, the missionary then moves on to another village to share the gospel there, and the, 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 the leaders in that village hear about this, uh, this family's decision to follow Christ. And so what they do is they, they want to set uh, sort of just set the, the standard for the village, and they go and they call this, uh, this family out, and they tell the husband that if he doesn't recant his faith in Christ, that they are going to kill his daughters, um, and he refuses to recant his faith and archers are present and they unleash arrows that pierce the bodies of his two daughters his uh, response after um, seeing his kids killed was I have decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back then the question is said will you you need to recant your faith or we're going to take your, your your wife's life and uh, He responds by saying, The world can be behind me, but the cross is still before me. And arrows are unleashed and plunge in the body of his wife, and his wife dies. Then they tell him that if if he doesn't recant his faith, they will take his life. And his response is, Though none is here to go with me, still I will follow. And the entire family was killed for their faith. Now... Word got back to the missionary, and um, he goes back to that northern province, and what he discovers is that many people now are Christ followers in that village because of the testimony, the suffering that was endured by that family, and the man's response. And, and there's sort of a mini revival that takes place in that northern Indian province. And the words of this man to the archers and to the leaders in that in that village um, sort of inspired a, a movement, and they've remembered and There was an evangelist named Sundar Singh who took those words and put them to traditional Indian music, and actually it became the first and only Indian hymn. I have decided to follow Jesus. It was picked up in the West, um, and a guy named George Beverly Shea began singing it at Billy Graham Crusades. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. It's rooted in a story of a man who's saying, Christ is Lord. And I'm not going back on that. Friends, that can happen in dramatic ways, and it can happen in the small ways, the day-to-day ways. And what Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom. And as we wrap up this series, the the beatitude really is a description of of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Friends, we we can't live with one foot in the kingdom of this world and one foot in the kingdom of of heaven. There is a call of Christ in our lives to be firmly planted and to be citizens of his kingdom and to embrace the ethos of his kingdom. And the Beatitudes just list out what it looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven. So may he empower us to be a people who embody who he is And may the Spirit of God continue to lead us to become more like him. Let's pray. So, Lord, we pray that very thing. We ask and pray that you would uh, would change us, that you would transform us. We ask and pray that, Lord, even uh, in in this series that we talk about just being different. Lord, we're not being different sort of to stick out. We're being different because you called us to live differently. So we ask and pray that you would empower us by your Spirit. And you be pleased that there will be a smile on your face as you watch your sons and daughters follow after you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.